0: Father, this morning we give you thanks and praise for the work that you're doing with Nolan and Marie and in uh, uh, the ministries as you've brought them together, Lord, to, uh, to a greater work than uh, was ever imagined before. But we, we pray, Father, your blessings upon them and their ministry. And this morning, before we come to your word, Lord, we want to lift up uh, the Garcia family and Particularly, we want to pray for Maria, who is uh, right now suffering in 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 the hospital, and uh, we we don't know all of the details, but we do know, Lord God, that you're there, and we know that you have the power to heal her and to raise her from 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 her bed, Lord God. But uh, we, right now, we pray that you will bring her through this this crisis, Lord, and 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 that uh, Lord, you will strengthen and help the family in in the midst of this. Uh, this ordeal, and we pray, Father God, that uh, uh, in in your healing, Lord God, it will it will bring about eyes open and hearts open to who you are and the power, Lord God, that you have to save lives, not only physically but especially spiritually. Lord, we pray for Sergio's mom, Yolanda. Lord, we pray that you will bring her through, Lord, this uh, uh, the scare that she had this morning with her heart. That we ask that you would heal her, Lord, and. Continue to strengthen her today and bring, bring hope and comfort to the family, Lord. We also want to pray for the Sanchez family and for the Duran family and their loss of, of family members this week. We, we ask, Father, for the comfort of your Holy Spirit to be upon them and with them uh, through this time as well. May you open our eyes. Anoint us, Lord, with your spirit. Grant us, God, wisdom as we come to your word this morning. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I want to mention before we begin our study that uh, uh, Robert uh, uh, Duran's father passed away this week. And uh, uh, there will be services. uh, There was visitation from 5 to 9 tomorrow evening at um, Hillcrest on Carolina. And then on uh, Tuesday morning, there is a service at San Antonio Church on um, Hunter and uh, North Loop at 1230 p.m., and then the uh, interment is at 2 o'clock at Fort Bliss, so if you have any questions, you, you can call the church office, but we, our prayers go out to Robert and, and to all of his family. Would you all please stand, we might read God's word this morning, together, verses 40 through 47, Acts chapter 2. Let's read together, let's read aloud. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about three thousand souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You all may be seated. The phrase, Peter the evangelist, is not often, if even rarely, found in commentaries or biblical history books as a as a label for a fisherman that turned to preaching, who, when under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he delivered his sermon to that crowd of devout Jews on the day of Pentecost, and yet the offices of prophet and evangelist he certainly fulfilled that day, with courage, with confidence, and with clarity. The Holy Spirit took Peter's sermon and used it to cut to the heart of each listener, to, to pierce through to the heart of each person that was there listening, convicting them of their sin. And, and, and even at that very moment in time, they, they found themselves, because of this conviction, guilty of crucifying their Messiah. And they knew that the Lord was a God of justice, and so they desperately asked the apostles the question, men and brethren, What shall we do? And so Peter told them how to be saved. He told them that they had to repent of their sins and to believe on the resurrected Jesus who was to them both Lord and Christ, both Master and Messiah. But he also said to them, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And I want to add one quick note here on the command. To be baptized in the name of jesus christ though we spoke of it uh, last week it is best to understand the phrase for the remission of sins as either on account of or on the basis of the forgiveness of sins for as we read in matthew chapter 3 when john the baptist baptized on the basis that people repented that we begin to understand more clearly what is happening here in acts chapter 2 For in Acts 2.38, it does not teach salvation by baptism, as some have believed. It's interesting that in Peter's other sermons, he said nothing about baptism. As a matter of fact, those in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. So just think then, if baptism were a part of salvation, then, then those Old Testament saints mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 wouldn't be saved. So this just to clarify that issue of what it meant uh, of uh, the the fact that uh, they were to be baptized for the remission of sins wasn't so much so that they would be forgiven, but that on the basis of, you see, on the basis of the forgiveness of sins, they were to be baptized. So that makes a lot more sense. Let's get back to Peter's work then as an evangelist. And let's go right into verse 40 here, for for this is where we begin to see both the vision and the heart, or the heart and the vision of the evangelist. It says, And with many other words he testified, and he exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, the sincerity and the genuineness of Peter's words is indicated by the words testified and exhorted. As he uses, as, as Luke uses these words to describe what, what Peter is doing, it says that he testified and exhorted. Now there are certain words in the Greek, uh, a couple of words that, that uh, point us to, to the word testify or witness, martus, which is what we saw back in chapter 1 verse 8. But, uh, but here it's a different word. There's, a, there's an addition to this particular word. And so it means more than just testified. It, it means to warn. And, and then the word for exhorted carries an even greater sense in that it, 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 it adds that thought of pleading. And so in other words, the text can read, He warned them and He pleaded with them with many other words. And so after this initial sermon, Peter didn't stop teaching them. And, and the apostles, I'm sure, were also used in, in bringing forth the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in these words that we find here in verse 40, Lay the heart of the evangelist. Here is the heart of the evangelist in that he continued to urge them to come to Jesus in repentance and surrender and to trust Him to be saved from such a perverse and corrupt generation of which both Jesus and Paul spoke of. And 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 this again, <clears throat> understand that we can look at one generation, but that's not all that God wants us to, to focus upon here. For example, Matthew chapter sixteen, Jesus spoke of this particular uh generation uh, of that time. It says in verses one through four, it says the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and they tested him, asking that he should show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, he calls them. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And then he says in verse 4, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. And so... Jesus spoke of that wicked and adulterous generation, the generation that He was speaking to directly. Matthew chapter 17, verse 17, here again in another instance that Jesus said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? And so, once again, we see Jesus focusing on the generation, calling them a wicked and a perverse generation. The Apostle Paul much later on, So the Philippian church would also mention this as he says in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 2 of Philippians. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And Paul brings up some, some very important issues here about us as believers living in a perverse generation. Now we can bring it to our own day and time, and we still live in a wicked, corrupt, perverse, and crooked generation. And probably much more now than it was then in Jesus' time. Just, just magnified by the number of people that are on this planet, magnified by the by, by the, the the way that uh, uh, the world is, is 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 formed today, in in the sense of communication and and how quickly wickedness can spread. But we are called to be lights in the midst of this kind of darkness. And this is a very significant thing that we have to understand as people in the body of Christ, people in the church, people who call themselves Christians, we need to have a light that shines bright in the midst of this darkness. We cannot be one, I don't know about you, but many of us have flashlights that, you know, all around our house, you know, uh, if the power goes out we want to have a flashlight ready, you know, to kind of see where we are if the light goes out at night or whatever. And how many times have we gone, you know, looking for that flashlight and we turn it on and all of a sudden you see this light that sputters, you know, a little bit and, and kind of, it doesn't really have any power to it. It just, you know, and you just kind of keep knocking on it, you know, to see where you're going. I think there are a lot of Christians that are like that flashlight. You know, they, they haven't recharged their batteries or changed their batteries. They're just kind of dying out. And eventually you have it long enough to see where, you know, the, where the fuse box is or whatever. And, and then all of a sudden it goes out right when you open the door. I mean, you know, that, and, and that's unfortunate that that's the way it is with too many Christians in the church today. Our light needs to shine bright. We are to be the light to the world of darkness that we're in right now. We're not of this world. No longer if we've come to Jesus Christ. We're no longer of this world. We're in it but not of it. So our light has to shine. But we cannot have this, 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 this thought of, 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 of being like the, uh, uh, the generation in which we live. So in Peter, then, we also see the vision of the evangelist, not only the heart of the evangelist to warn them and to say, be saved from this perverse generation. But we also see the vision of the evangelist, one that is all too often lost in the gospel because the gospel, or at least the church itself, becomes accustomed to and adapts to the world, which is a bad thing to do, and eventually the world to the church. So he says be, so he says be saved from this perverse generation. I mean, you could say that any generation responsible for putting the son of God to death is a perverse generation. But since every generation is responsible for Jesus' death, every generation needs salvation. Every generation. And much more now because we're living in this generation. But for those that were listening to Peter that day, history was indeed repeating itself. In the wilderness experience of the Israelites, a new generation arose that saved itself, as it were, from the older generation that had continually rebelled against God. You know that in those 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness, a new generation was rising up just naturally because the older generation was giving birth to a new generation. But by the time they reached the the promised land... It wasn't the older generation that went in, it was the new generation that went in. Following after Joshua and Caleb, the only two from the older generation that were allowed in to the promised land. Now the Lord was giving His people another 40 years. Another 40 years of grace. Before Jerusalem would be taken. Before the temple was burned to the ground and the Jews were dispersed. But on that day, when Peter preached this sermon under the the leading and guiding and influence of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people repented, and they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were saved. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, our next verse, notice that it says, "...and those who gladly received His word were baptized." And I want you to notice that it doesn't say, received His words, it says, received His word, they were baptized." The word, the whole set, the whole sense of what he was preaching, the whole thing that he was saying, the whole prophetic vision that he was giving, the whole message that he was placing before them was received. And when they received it, they received it gladly and they were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And through the mighty moving of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost saw a tremendous harvest of souls. The church went from 120 to 3,120 in one day. I mean, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it be? To see churches do that kind of multiplication. Actually, it's addition. It's God's addition, you know. God's addition is a lot better than our multiplication anyway. But as people made their decision for Christ, they were stepping out of darkness into God's marvelous light. They were stepping from death into life. They were stepping out of wrath into God's amazing grace. They were stepping out of sin into Jesus Himself. And they received Peter's word gladly. They received it gladly. And, 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 and I want you to understand that this, this is what, which, what we should be seeing when a person lays out his heart before God and says, God, I'm a sinner. Lord, I have sinned against You uh, mightily and, I, and I, just, I repent of my sins and I turn to You. And I turn to the mercy and the grace. Uh, that you have through what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me, and and, and Lord, I, I I need a new heart, I need a new mind, but Lord, I surrender myself to you. And 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 you know when when a person acknowledges, you know, when confesses with his mouth the Lord Jesus and believes in his heart that he's risen from the dead, it says, "You shall be saved." Is so when a person comes to that salvation in Christ, we should receive everything gladly, and we should know that gladness is going to be uh, just distinctive in in a person's life. You know, it, it's, it's sad to me sometimes when I think that, you know, sometimes we're so quick to want to just have somebody say a prayer that we don't ever see the gladness, you know. Because we've never taken them from death to life. We've never made them realize that if they stay in their sins, I mean, they're going to be the most miserable people in all the world. It's coming to that place. And, I'm, and I look around and I think, I, I've known a lot of you for a long time, and, and I know that when you came to know Jesus Christ, man, you were excited. You, I mean, you just began to realize this is a new life. It wasn't like you said a prayer and you went home and you went and bought a pizza. Just ate your pizza, got up in the morning, you know, feeling sick. You just didn't, you, know, you just didn't say a prayer and say, "Well, okay, I'm saved." And then you went home and, and you know, got, you know, heartburn. Do you, know, you understand what I'm saying? Something changed. Something became new in your life. All of a sudden, priorities changed. Things changed, and you just said, "Well, you know, this is great." And you did things that you never did before. This is what they did. 3,000 people did something they never thought they would ever do. They got baptized. I'll talk about that in a moment. But what happened to them was that they stepped out of their legalistic Judaism into the liberty of the body of Christ, the church. And this is why we need to understand the importance of the church. And how much Jesus loves the church and how much we should love the church. And how distinctive the church is from where we were before. In John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. Now listen, he's talking to people who started believing in Jesus. He said to them, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered, we, we, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And that's what happened that day of Pentecost. That the Son of God set them free. Because they came to know who the Son of God was. And they realized the freedom that they had now in Christ. Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He said, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And he's speaking to, about the Jewish people and their experience. He says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is liberty, you see. We've been set free from sin and death, from the power of sin and death. We've been set free from the power and the punishment of sin. We have been set free from that. That's something to rejoice in, folks. That is something that we have that nothing and no one else in this world has. We have the freedom To be set free by Jesus himself. And so those who believed on Jesus that day not only received his word gladly, but they made a remarkable and dramatic statement in being baptized. Now the Jews generally saw baptism as a rite only for a Gentile convert and not for anyone born a Jew. It symbolized to them the breaking of one's Gentile past and the washing away of all their defilement. And so for them to submit to baptism meant that they were fully convinced of the person and work of Jesus Christ and their great need for Him as their Savior. They did something they, that they would have never done any other time. They submitted in obedience to what Peter said, be baptized. It probably meant for them, listen, we understand this when we came to know Christ... Our families who may have, uh, maybe believe in a a lot of other different things. When we came to know Christ, a lot of things happened in our lives, right? What about them? It probably meant for them persecution by their own people. It probably meant being cut off from their family. It probably meant being denied a place in the synagogue and Jewish society. That was a big deal for them to get baptized. And think about this, where they got baptized. Some people thought, how do you baptize 3,000 people in one day? Well, very simply, if you go today to Jerusalem and they're at the southern steps of the temple, you realize that these were excavated not too many years ago and the excavations continue and they have excavated a bunch, I don't know how many, there's a number of, down, down off of the steps there, a number of mikvahs. These mikvahs were ceremonial baths actually, there's places where people went into to cleanse themselves before they went into the temple. Well, that's what they used. They had to use that. They were at the temple anyway. And there were a number of them, so they could all just go in there and get baptized. So that's, that's what was, uh, uh, that, was, that was the possibility, and then certainly the possibility exists because all of the baths were there, and the water kept flowing, and so their sins kept going. No, I'm just kidding. You know, dumping their sins. All right. But you see, with this in mind about their baptism I mean, and, and, and their conversion, these, these bold new converts would, would now need instruction. They would now need instruction in the Word of God. They would need instruction in the fellowship with God's people if they were to mature, if they were to become fruitful and effective in their witness. And so the early church did more than just make converts. They also made disciples as Christ had commanded them. We read this last week, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Boy, they took, they took Jesus to heart. They said, we got, we got to do what he said. We're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to make disciples of all nations. We're going to teach them and observe all the things that Jesus has commanded. And so in verse 42 now of our text in Acts chapter 2, it says, And they continued steadfastly. Speaking of those who were baptized, speaking of those who came to, to receive the, the the word of God gladly and the and the salvation of, of Christ gladly. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And this morning I really want to focus wholeheartedly on this on these two words, continued steadfastly. We oftentimes skip over that awfully quickly when we read this. We like to read about the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers, and these certainly are the four hallmarks of the church. But we, 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 we sometimes just kind of skim over the continued steadfastly. I don't want to do that. You see, Luke, Luke describes for us the early church by informing us that the believers in it were set apart and characterized by their devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship with one another, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That they continued steadfastly in these things tells us that the growth and development of their newly acquired spiritual life would take priority over everything else in their lives. They were completely and totally devoted to these four things. In other words, they were completely and totally devoted to Jesus Christ. Completely and totally devoted to Jesus Christ. This would take priority in their life above everything else. I want you to think about that thought. Because I want you to ask yourself, is anything taking priority over my spiritual life? Is anything taking priority over my service to Jesus Christ and my service for Jesus Christ? Is anything taking priority in my life over the things uh, that, that, uh, that lend to the devotion that I am to have in prayer and, in, and in, in, in serving the Lord and in bringing the Word of God to others and in, and in fellowshipping with my brothers and sisters and in, and in studying and reading the Word of God? Because that, that's the full package there, you see. Is there anything... You see, the verb translated continued steadfastly or devoted is a common one that means a steadfast and single-minded fidelity, which which literally means a single-minded faithfulness to a certain course of action. A single-minded faithfulness to a certain course of action. Are we singly minded in the things that we do for Jesus Christ? And are we faithful in it? You see, I'm oftentimes burdened by those who are not wholeheartedly devoted to the things of God and of Christ. Because when you begin to look at their lives, you see that their growth becomes stunted. Their witness is stifled and their, own, uh, their once passionate heart has turned stale. Can you imagine being stunted, being uh, you know, uh, stifled and stale? I mean, those are three S's I really wouldn't want you all to ever fall into. Growth, stunted, witness, stifled, heart. Turn stale. Because the Word of God is set aside. Fellowship is questioned and under suspicion. And the prayer life is no longer actively practiced. You know, only only you individually and and me, only we know how strong or how weak our prayer life is. And for the most part, you know, if we were honest with ourselves, we would probably say, you know, I, I probably don't pray enough. I probably don't pray enough. You know what saddened me? Years and years ago, I had an opportunity to be among some uh, Christians when we went to uh, China, uh, to Hong Kong and to Macau uh, to do some ministry over there. And, and, and we met some, some Chinese that had uh, come out of communist China and they were uh, still involved in the underground church. But uh, when, when we asked them what it was that they wanted us to do for them, was there anything that we could do for them? They, they said to us very clearly, this one particular pastor, uh, an older man, 75 years old and still serving the Lord, still being persecuted for his faith. But he said one thing. He said, pray that I uh, could devote myself more to prayer. And we knew that all they ever did was pray. And, and, and you know, so that, that 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 just like, you know, deflated you because you thought they want us to pray that they would become more devoted in prayer and I thought, you know, at that moment you realize we don't pray enough. We don't pray enough in this, in this country. where We're pretty comfortable in what we have. And so over there where they have nothing, I mean, they, they depend on the Lord for everything. They depend on the Lord for everything. All we have to do, you know, as Nolan and Marie shared with us today, all we have to do is look on the other side of the border. That happens over there too. It's that close to us. But we lose sight of these things. So it brought to my remembrance these passages of Scripture. I want to share with you very quickly here. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. I was reading this the other day, and and, and it just seemed like the Lord just let this next verse just stand out and, and, and smack me right in the face because it said in verse 4, But let patience have it's perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And I couldn't, I couldn't take my eyes off of that phrase, let patience have its perfect work. Because it continued to remind me how short we fall of trusting God all the way through a certain trial, or all the way through a certain circumstance in our life. Where we're struggling over one thing or another, but we, we've just stopped. You know, we haven't, we, we haven't let patience have its complete work in us. We, we just, you know, we're so impatient and we say, you know, this is it. I've just got to take my own action and I got to go do my own thing now, you know. And I thought how sad that is in the church that we're not letting patience have its perfect work in us so that we might be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. We have not because we ask not, and we ask amiss, as James will say later. But then in verse 5 he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God wants to give us what we need in the midst of our struggles. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Let patience have its perfect work. You know, there, there's this necessity to be steadfast and to continue to stay steadfast in the things that we're learning from, from God and from Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, in describing certain gifts that are given to the church, in verses 9 through 13, he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. And notice the next phrase, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Continuing steadfastly, the same phrase. Continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, so on and so forth. Continuing. Colossians 4, 2, uh, verse 2 continue earnestly in prayer, he says, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. You know, it brings to mind that we're falling short. I, I, you know, I, I'm not just speaking at you, I'm speaking to all of us here. We're falling short of what God has called us to do. I think of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12-14, to where where He says, "Uh, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. When we begin to do those things that don't honor God any longer, we do the things that only please us. Guess what? This is what's happening. An evil heart of unbelief. And He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers. And He says, But exhort one another daily. Folks, that's what I'm doing here today. I am exhorting you today, as it is today. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Boy, this, this should stir our hearts up here this morning. We live in perilous, dangerous times, and it would behoove us to heed the warnings of Scripture while it is still day, knowing that Jesus is coming soon. Be filled with the Holy Spirit that you would continue steadfastly in the ways of Christ. He is coming. Why are we not living as we think that He may, you know, as we know that He could come at any moment? How things have to change how our perspective needs to change. In effect, for many of us, it has to change back to the way it was when we first came to Christ. When we had that, that, uh, that love, that first love, that, de- that de- devotion, you know, that, that determination in our heart to let everyone know that Jesus was coming. And so this, this is that heart that I don't want you to leave here without that thought that we need to be focused this isn't just a history lesson for us. This is, this is speaking to us now. We're living in a crooked and perverse generation. Now the four things that are the hallmarks of the church. Let's look at the first one, the Apostles' Doctrine. This was the first mark of the infant church. It was marked by Truth. Truth. The Holy Spirit was already beginning to fulfill Christ's promise that He would bring to the remembrance of the apostles all the teachings of Jesus and open their hearts and minds to these new truths. Now, they were new truths to them because they were kind of in the old legalism, you know, and so it was just, you know, new truths to them, but it was truth. The apostles were witnesses of His resurrection and ascension and they taught the new believers everything they knew about the Lord. Now we ourselves cannot grow and mature in Christ unless we read, unless we hear the Word of God taught. That's what you get when you come here every Sunday morning, every Saturday night, every Wednesday night, every Tuesday night with the ladies, every Saturday morning with the men. The Word of God is going to be taught. Listen, read, hear, absorb, use, believe. In this, we want to be unoriginal. You know, we're, we have so many people say, well, listen, we have to have a, an original uh, you know, thing about our ministry. Our ministry is original. And You know what? Don't be original. Be unoriginal. You know why I say that? Because we don't have our own doctrine. It's the apostles' doctrine. So be unoriginal. Just teach their doctrine. Quit trying to make it yours or trying to change it so it could be you know, original. Man, let's get back into the old, old Word of God, which is still new. It's never gotten old. Because it's spiritual. And it's spiritual truth. And spiritual truth will never grow old. These same words that were taught 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, we're we're hearing them today. It's the Apostles' Doctrine. It's not ours. The teaching must emphasize the person and work of Jesus Christ. How many times have you heard the name of Jesus Christ today? Uh, If you didn't count, then you you realize you can't. Because that's what we're going to focus on. That's what uh, Nolan said a whole lot when he was talking about the just teaching Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Truth, you see. Truth, blessed with His grace, blessed with His mercy and His love. But they were also then not only to, uh, uh, to be in the, in the apostles' doctrine, but they were also to continue steadfastly in fellowship. Fellowship. Now, let me first of all tell you what fellowship isn't. Let me tell you what fellowship isn't. It isn't God's people getting together to be busybodies and gossips, using the guise of prayer for others as an excuse to pass on the latest tidbits about the faults of others. That is not fellowship. You know why I say that? Paul, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, said to them, he says, Besides they learn to be idle, wandering or I should say, wandering about from house to house. Now that's significant because we're going to learn that the early church went from house to house. So here he says to them, uh, well, besides they, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things that, uh, which they ought not. So you re- realize I wasn't being original when I told you that the fellowship isn't about uh, you know, being busybodies and gossips. Paul already beat me to it. But you see, I, I mention this because we ought, we ought to realize what fellowship really is. Fellowship is the English translation of the Greek word koinonia. And it isn't even the best way to establish the, the understanding of, of, of koinonia, but it, but it means more than just to share, because we've often said we know koinonia means to share. Well, it means more than that. It, it is a very deep and rich word that involves, and, and I'm going to give you a whole long definition here, so you can catch as many of them as you want, but, but it's a word that involves mutual responsibilities to encourage one another in spiritual growth a connection and unity with all other believers in the church since we share in the very nature of Jesus. We share in the same guide for life, the same love for God, the same desire to worship Him, the same struggles and victories, the same calling for living for Him, and the same joy of communicating the good news to others. There's your definition of koinonia. If you missed it, get the tape. Whereas the Apostle's doctrine was the truth, fellowship is the tie that binds us. Fellowship, in this particular sense, is the tie that binds us. And it is love that is the heart of fellowship. You know, we can say that John, the Apostle John, summed up Koinonia this way. In 1 John 3, verse 14, he said, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Folks, uh, even though the word koinonia is not mentioned here, nonetheless, that's how you sum up fellowship. We have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Then thirdly, the mention of uh, the continuing steadfastly in the breaking of bread. The church was marked not only by truth and by that tie that binds us, but also by the table, the table of breaking of bread. This is more than likely a reference to the Lord's Supper or Communion. But it must be remembered that bread and wine were the common fare at the Jewish table. The Shabbat and the Passover table. The Sabbath, uh, Shabbat and the Passover table. And we know that the last request that Jesus gave his disciples before he went to the cross, as Luke recorded it was, do this. In remembrance of me. Luke 22 verse 19. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now it does not need to be stated that the breaking of bread referred to their regular meals too. Which we ought to understand maybe better this way. You know, We, we not only break bread here, we also tear tortillas. So at our regular table, you know, we are able to break bread together. And, but in their time, at their regular meal, at the close of each meal, they probably paused to remember the Lord by observing the Lord's Supper. But in any event, it was a mark of the church. And they also continued steadfastly in prayers. And so they continued steadfastly not only uh, with the truth, with that tie that binds with a table, but also... Approaching God's throne. God's throne. They were to continually approach God's throne confidently with requests and supplications. And since the emphasis is on corporate gatherings as such, then this reference uh, is to prayers, uh, or this reference to prayer suggests prayer meetings, which, by the way, in most churches, is the least attended meeting of all. The church, from time to time, and, and more times than we could imagine, must pray together. We pray individually, but we as a church must pray together. In the name of Jesus opened many opportunities like never before. We are told in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and to find grace for help in time of need. I'm moving a little faster than, than the uh, overhead there. But uh, verse 16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. See, we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus is the Son of God. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So we can come to Him boldly, you see, so that we might obtain these things. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast. Notice, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast. Continue steadfastly, in other words. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Consider that the Christians that we've met in the book of Acts here weren't content to meet once a week for services as usual. They weren't content with once. They didn't have that mindset. You know, today we have a mindset. I've actually talked to people today you know, in, in, in the last 20-some you know, years uh, and, and all that, that actually say, you mean you go to church more than once a week? I actually come to church every day. I, you know, this is where I, you know, <laughs> it's my center of operation here, you know. But, you know, but, but, you know and, I, and I have to tell you, I, I, I love to be in, 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 the, in the church. I love to be in fellowship with you. I love to be around you. I mean, you know, we, we, we try to, you know, measure out our time, which is getting real short for me right now, but try to measure out our time so we can, you know, meet with another group that's coming later. And we already met with one last night. And, and uh, you know, but, but it's a joy to be in the church. We need to love the church like Jesus loves the church. Because the church isn't this building, folks. This is, this building is not the church. This is a building. You're the church. We're the body of Christ. We are to build each other up. And sometimes it takes more than just once a week. I mean, notice how often they met and why. Let's, let's finish this off now in verses 43 to 47. Now we're, we're in, in, in overdrive, okay? Here we go. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. You know what we hear today? Fear came upon some souls and they left the church. Fear came upon some people and they went someplace else. Folks, this is the fear of God. This is the fear of reverence. And they began, when they feared God, they began to see things happen. It's time we start fearing God again to see God do great and mighty things in our midst. There were the wonders, the signs were done through the apostles. And now it says all who believed were together, Koinonia, and had all things in common, Koinonia. And they sold their possessions and good and divided them among all as anyone had need. They shared everything. Koinonia. And so continuing daily, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house, not breaking hearts and lives by telling gossip and all. You see the you see the connection now? Breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Folks, that's that's our desire here. To simply teach the simple truth of God's word. To break that bread and to eat it. And to know it as something that is living and alive for us and in us. Praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, even the people that didn't like them. They had to say, but they're different. Because they had the love of Christ. And what did the Lord do? He added to the church daily those who were being saved. So we don't know how many after that 3,000 that first day. How many more came? Because later on we find that 5,000 more came. That's 8,000. But we don't know between the 3 and the 5 how many more were coming. But I want you to think about this. Don't worry about the numbers. Think about this. With that heart, no complaining, no criticizing, no envy, no strife. The fruit of the Spirit was so evident in the early church love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self control, all of them operating because the Spirit of God was in the church, the people. I want to close with this one simple statement. Take it for what it's worth. What Jesus has given us is simple things to do. What Jesus has given us is simple things to do. The hard thing is to do them faithfully. Let's pray.